1: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number nine in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, April the 13th. First of all, I talked to Vivek Iyer, the founder and CEO of augmented reality company Appirition. We'll be talking about how businesses can use augmented reality. It's a growth industry. And then I have a chat with economist Saul Eslake. We will talk about how markets are convulsing with the impact of the looming trade war between the US and China. And as he says, other nations could join. It affects everyone. But first, let's talk to Vivek Ayah. Vivek Iyer, tell us about Apparition.
2: Apparition was founded in Melbourne just over four years ago with a view of being a centre for enterprise augmented reality. So our, fo- our focus on what we do is we primarily work with customers who are looking at how they can implement AR solutions into the enterprise context.
1: So you're developing augmented reality for companies. So give us some examples of how that could work.
2: Absolutely. So um, augmented reality is is different to virtual reality. So if I give it a little bit of background, what what the difference is. So these all fall under the category of immersive technologies, right? So immersive technology whereupon you're immersed or the end end user is immersed into what they're actually seeing. So one one example, virtual reality is probably more popular at the moment where you've seen... people put on the glasses and you have a full, fully immersive experience. Augmented reality is slightly different in the sense when you have a device or whether it's a tablet, phone or your glasses and you overlay um, information on top of an existing object. So the key thing with augmented reality is context; it's context specific. So, it's, so based on where you are and what the object is, the overlay information could be different. So, in terms of where the use cases are, and I think one of the opportunities and challenges with augmented reality are the same, is that there are several use cases, but how many of them are actually um, going to be easily monetized, and how many of them provide real tangible benefits, is if you look at it from the perspective of saying, well, okay, um, here is a piece of equipment, I need to know how to uh, install it, as an example, so... Where you overlay, whether it's through your phone or your tablet or glasses, and you can get a layer of information on top. Now, that layer of information could be a how-to video, it could be a 3D step-by-step instructions, or it could be audio as well. The other key benefits and some of the works we've done in the past is where the overlay information is in a different language, right? So primarily you may have a a brand that um, someone wants to find out more details about, but they're not necessarily from the country that um, it's originating from. You can certainly have different languages overlaying, So it gives an opportunity for manufacturers to directly speak to the consumers. That's one big advantage of AI in that context, um, in the retail context, for example. The second aspect is, as I said, in the, in the field services or anywhere where there needs to be instructions on how to carry out a particular task, uh, having the ability to... Um, use it as a reference. So not necessarily for the day-to-day tasks, but the tasks which we don't do on a regular basis, anywhere where there's service technicians involved. um, There's certainly ROI benefits, and there's also um, reduction in time to do it. And also more importantly, the the error rate gets significantly reduced.
1: Right, okay. So what businesses would you be targeting?
2: Sure. We've got, we've got an approach where upon we've got a platform that we've built and uh, we've got uh, multiple sectors that we're targeting at the moment. Um, the infrastructure sector is one. Infrastructure is anywhere where there's utilities, um, telecommunications, anywhere where there's a field services component. That's one key area. Um, retail, uh, the retail sector and packaging, anywhere there's packaging information that goes out. Uh, we've also got customers in the education sector. Where um, kind of some of the leading universities are utilising what um, we put forward um, as a part of their um, as a part of their training mechanism to, to students, and and it's extended past beyond just uh, universities. It also extends out to high schools and and primary schools for that matter. So you can not just read a book; you can actually have the book come out to life, and that the level of engagement that brings in is is what's quite uh, amazing.
1: That's quite extraordinary, but I know I know that in places like the US and China augmented yeah. reality is way ahead of its use in Australia. <laughs> is there an issue here educating businesses about it?
2: look I think I think it is but I think in Australia one of the one of the challenges is has always been um, we tend to follow a little bit what happens in the US um, and that's one of the key key reasons I think um, where AR is if you look at some of this there are still some limitations in terms of you know the hardware and things along those lines but generally speaking i think we're probably about one to two years away from full mainstream adoption especially i'm talking from an enterprise perspective but having said that you do see more and more augmented reality books you have seen it's starting to um come into mainstream but not quite in the enterprise sector as yet um and that that could be uh, could be numerous reasons but i think um VR is becoming more and more popular. Um, With AR, I think we will still have that period of gestation uh, probably about a year or two before we get to see that more and more. Pokemon Go, for example, was a great starting point. You know, until, was it two years ago when it first came out? Until then, no one actually knew what AR, at least now the the whole concept of, hey, if you really break it down and what Pokemon Go does, you're interacting with a real-life object with an overlay of information. So... That education barrier, and I must admit, it's made life a lot easier when you're trying to explain AI to someone, you pull out the game and say, hey, see what's happening? You're actually interacting with an object. Now, what if you actually do beyond just a game? What if you can interact with an object in a more meaningful manner? And some of the research that we're doing um, in terms of workplaces of the future is exactly in that area, and how real-life objects um, can be interacted using a, a gamified interface.
1: That's interesting because one of the big selling points for Australian businesses wanting to do business with China Mm. is that augmented reality is all the go in China. Therefore, Australian businesses need to be across augmented reality if they have to do business with China.
2: Absolutely. I think it gives an opportunity. I think more more than anything else, it gives an opportunity to communicate directly with the end consumer in a a way that's consistent with your brand. I think that's one of the big advantages of what AI can bring in. Um, you know the, the example I kind of use is a few years ago if you want to buy a fridge you go up to a retail outlet one of the bigger retail outlets and you buy a fridge now what you do is you go to retail outlet, you have a look at what it looks like then go online and buy the best one and get it delivered right? Um, so what, what, what does that mean in the context of what we're talking about it's more than ever it's important for manufacturers to be talking directly with the consumers so if AR is the mechanism, but, and I think it is, because you know, language um, barriers are sort of made a lot easier. Um, it, it really does open up the scope for the Australian businesses, especially when we're exporting into these markets.
1: Now, tell us about your centre of
2: excellence. Yep, absolutely. So Apparition announced a, a centre of excellence alongside with the Unity. So for those who don't know, Unity is a, a 3D game um, engine. Uh, they they are they're a global company. Um, what um, our vision is is to work with Australian enterprises as well as enterprises throughout Asia, who have heard about augmented reality and virtual reality, but not quite sure what necessarily is the use case that's specific to them. Um, and where we where this centre of excellence comes in is we will build, build, build proof of concepts such that it's relevant to the ROI of that particular business. That's one key thing, but. The second aspect about it is, is beyond just building a proof of concept to say, well, what are the steps that need to take place in terms of commercialization of that innovation? What are the steps that need to take place? What are the change management processes that need to happen in terms of adoption of these technologies? And uh, that's one of the outputs of what the COE will be doing as well. We're quite excited by by this. It's um, um, going to... it's. It's going to grow in the next um, next few months. We'll, we'll be taking on a whole bunch of new staff uh, locally as well as overseas to actually uh, implement these projects and, um, yeah, looking forward to it.
1: Well, the exciting part about the Centre of Excellence is you're actually bringing businesses on board and Absolutely. educating them about the benefits of augmented reality.
2: Absolutely, and that's one of the key drivers as well because it, it is, like any new technology, it needs to go through that whole phase, that whole phase of um, education, and then they need to see... At the end of the day, any software has to do one of three things: it needs to either make money, save money, or hit some kind of a compliance requirement. Um, we need to we need to understand what that means for the businesses itself and how that integrates back in, and um, and each uh, organisation may have a slightly different variant. You know, we've got customers um, who are using it for training manuals, so they're induction programs that they that they're using. They're using AI in a way to engage further with their new staff that are getting onboarded. Um, so. It also it's very useful because knowledge that exists within an organisation can be reused, you know, as a part of the induction program. So there's a lot, you know, especially in field services. I mentioned earlier on, there may be a way of doing things that a that a worker who's you know closer to retirement or is going to be leaving, they can actually put that in a digitised format. For the next generation of workers to use, and that's quite exciting. So.
1: Right, right. Now, now to stay ahead, you you need a fair bit of research. Now, you have research going on at Swinburne and also in Chennai, is that right?
2: Exactly. So we've got uh, two research centres. Uh, the main one is what we work with Swinburne University, and we're doing some really interesting things with them. Um, what a couple of research projects: one integrating augmented reality with artificial intelligence, um, and specific, specifically around serious games and how gamification is going to affect uh, the workplace of the future. And um, in addition to that, we're also looking at the non-technical component of research. Is in a sense, what are the human factors that that need to uh, that need to be considered? Why are some sectors more likely to be? Ahead than others in uh, in adoption of these technologies, so it's it's quite an interesting uh, interesting area. And the facilities that's been been are great to to do this. And um, the centre in Chennai, that's with IIT, uh, Indian Institute of Technology, and um, over there, it's a slightly different um, the type of research we're doing there. That's more likely to be to cater for the Indian market and the kind of challenges that exist um, over there.
1: Right, right. So you see the Indian market as a as a key area absolutely
2: on? absolutely one of the interesting things with india is um uh, there are so many languages in place there's a, there's a whole um culture of um uh, of retail which is quite different and uh, and then and the real estate as well so the slightly different focus areas but um, nonetheless there are um, uh, immense opportunities one big advantage to india and why we went down that path as against um China, for example, is the language factor. You know, they're high, highly mobile um, English-speaking languages and which we can sort of build our uh, content strategy from. So. And, and
1: just about everyone in India speaks English. Absolutely. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Often better than Australians. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, yeah, So, Absolutely. Well, Vivek, uh, thank you very much for your time. It's been terrific. Thank yeah. you.
2: Excellent. Thanks, Leon. Thank you.
1: And now let's hear from economist Saul Islake. Now, Saul, it's like the market has been roiled by the stalled talks between America and China over trade, and it's affecting investors around the world. What's your view about this?
3: Well, a concern in financial markets reflects a genuine fear that a trade war between the US and China could have damaging consequences for the world's two largest economies, hence Inevitably, for other economies that have close trading relationships with either or both of those of the world's two largest economies, possibly a concern that, as history shows, trade wars can lead to other types of wars with far more serious consequences, although it's much too early to be putting a high probability on that kind of scenario. And fourth, uh, in this respect, and in some others, the Trump administration seems to be determined to erode some of the fundamentals of the rules-based international system under which most of the world has operated since the end of the Second World War. And that's creating a great deal of uncertainty, uh, which is one of the factors roiling financial markets over the course of this year.
1: So where do you see this trend? Are panning out to? I mean, what what can we see happen?
3: Well, there are a number of alternative scenarios, depending on the actions of key players. If you take the Trump administration and some of its key spokespeople on these issues at face value, what we're really seeing here is negotiating poise on the part of both the US and China that is they are announcing these tariff measures without actually implementing them in with a view to cutting a deal to use one of trump's fam- favorite phrases on the things that really matter which again taking them at face value are not so much exports and imports of aluminium and steel or soybeans and mobile phone parts, but rather the uh, so-called theft of intellectual property from American companies by Chinese state-owned enterprises and others, and the use of what the Americans see as unfair instruments by the Chinese government and its authorities to achieve global dominance in some of the most important emerging industries in the world economy by 2025, the so-called Made in China 2025 strategy that's one of Xi Jinping's signature initiatives now that he's consolidated his position as China's most powerful leader since Mao Zedong. The Chinese have some issues on their side too, including what are effectively bans on US exports of a number of products that China doesn't, and at least in the near term, can't make for itself, uh, bans which probably contribute at the margin to the size of the bilateral trade imbalance between China and the US. So that's one alternative, that's one possibility. And I guess it's possible that if That is really what's happening, then this could all come to a conclusion that's reasonably satisfactory and doesn't lead to further losses in financial markets or elsewhere. However, I think that is a charitable interpretation, and there is potentially far more at stake if the US and China do actually go ahead with the trade measures that they have announced, some of which are in flagrant breach of WTO rules, uh, and that applies to both sides. There could be escalated measures, not only by the U.S. and China, but by other countries that are collateral damage in this emerging trade war. And the real concern I have is that the Trump administration's actions do seem to indicate a complete lack of understanding as to why the U.S. has such a gargantuan trade deficit. Um, uh, the US is trade deficit its overall trade deficit reflects the fact that it
1: when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue nile.com you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door
0: Right at home.
3: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Invests more than it saves. That gross investment by the U.S. is exceeding gross saving by U.S. households, business and governments by a large and increasing margin. And the deficits that the U.S. run with particular countries such as China uh, are simply the way that that imbalance between gross saving and gross investment in the United States uh, plays out according to patterns of comparative advantage between different nations. Uh, Without without anything being done to bring domestic savings and domestic investment in the US more into line with each other, any attempt by the US to reduce its bilateral deficit with China will inevitably lead to an increase in bilateral deficits with some other countries. And you can see that playing out, for example, in the way that low-cost, labour-intensive manufacturing is moving from China to other countries like, for example, Vietnam or Bangladesh in the same way that when the US was waging a similar campaign against Japan in the 1980s and imposing trade restrictions on Japanese exports to of motor vehicles to the United States, pretending that they were voluntary on Japan's part, what effectively happened was that a large part of Japan's motor vehicle export industry was relocated to places like thailand and so it's a bit like squeezing on a balloon and without any actions to remedy the fundamental cause of the u.s current account deficit uh, then uh, these measures that the u.s are pursuing aren't going to solve anything indeed and people may not have noticed this, uh, the U.S.'s administration's fiscal policies, the unfunded tax cuts and the increase in government spending that was included in the most recent budget are actually going to make the imbalance between gross saving and gross investment worse, leading to a deterioration in the current account balance, and we see that in the monthly trade figures that have been reported by the U.S. in the last six months.
1: Now... What you're saying, therefore, is that we can expect months of volatility because this is not going to be resolved in the next week or so.
3: No, I don't think it is unless you really do take at first face value the first scenario I uh, described. That is where the U.S. administration and its Chinese counterpart are simply engaging in some kind of signaling uh, and that their intention is in fairly short order to come to a deal over issues like intellectual property and compulsory joint venturing, which Trump would then be able to portray as a victory. Now, what clearly the Americans have to find a way of doing, if that is their real intention, is of... uh, allowing Xi Jinping and the Chinese side uh, to concede those grounds to the US without losing face in their own terms, as uh, the Chinese military strategist Sun Tzu supposedly wrote, uh, you have to provide a golden bridge for your enemy to retreat over. And uh, it's not obvious to me that the Americans are doing that. Uh, Xi Jinping may not face such a critical press or domestic opposition as, she, as uh, Donald Trump does. But nonetheless, the Chinese people are intensely nationalistic, and Xi Jinping's own internal enemies within the Chinese system would probably be quick to move if the Chinese backed down or were perceived to be backing down to US pressure without making some significant victories for themselves.
1: Now, uh, when you think about it, China has a number of cards up its sleeve. Uh, For example, China could call for a boycott of American businesses, like, for example, General Motors, like, for example, Apple, like, for example, Qualcomm, and the Chinese will do as they're told, and that could actually have an impact on American business.
3: Yes, of course it could, and the Chinese have done that with smaller countries such as Norway and Korea before um, inflicting some damage on each of those in response to perceived slights such as, in Norway's case, awarding the Nobel Peace Prize to a Chinese dissident. Uh, Of course, dealing with America is a different kettle of fish, and if the Chinese did that, uh, they would be taking some pain themselves as well as inflicting pain on their American targets. Uh, Another possibility much discussed, of course, is that the Chinese could dump some or a large proportion of their holdings of close to $3 US trillion worth of U.S. government securities, U.S. Treasury bonds and the like. Now, that would not be without some significant pain for themselves, of course, because it would almost by definition, entail accepting a sharp appreciation of the Chinese currency, the renminbi, which would cause some pain to the Chinese economy. Um, Of course, within the Chinese system, there isn't as much scope for those who feel that pressure to complain about it. But there'd undoubtedly be some pain. In thinking that through, the Chinese would also have to contemplate the possibility that if they did dump large quantities of US Treasury bonds in the hope that that would send US interest rates upwards, uh, the US Federal Reserve has already demonstrated that it has the capacity to buy large quantities of US Treasury bonds. So it may be possible for the US to take action that neutralizes those steps on the part of the Chinese. But Be that as it may, uh, anything like that would be very unsettling to financial markets, uh, not only in the United States, but around the world, including in China itself.
1: So what we can expect in summary is months and months now of volatility and uncertainty because of this concern about trade wars.
3: But yes, unless the uh, and, unless you really think you can take what the Trump administration is saying at face value, which uh, I would be reluctant to do at this stage, and if I am right that this isn't just simply some negotiating postures by the U.S. with a view to sealing a quick deal. In other words, if this is the precursor to a whole series of tit-for-tat trade measures, then it's not just volatility in financial markets that we have to be worried about. What we have to be worried about is the outlook for economic growth in the U.S., China and many other countries besides, including Australia. And we also have to be worried about the future of the rules-based system under which trade has been conducted uh, really since the 1940s but uh, increasingly important as more economies have joined the global trading system. Australia's prosperity, the prosperity of most of Asia, indeed I don't think it's exaggerating the prosperity of much of the world as a whole in recent years has been built on these uh, this rules based system of international trade and the confidence people have had that the rules will be upheld in the first instance by individual countries. And in those circumstances where individual countries breach them by an internationally accepted arbitration system and the actions of the US in the first instance and potentially China in response. are really threatening the heart of this long-standing, widely accepted until now, rules-based international trading
1: system. Well, Saul, so as always, it's a delight to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time.
3: Uh, that's a pleasure, Leon. Talk to you again soon.
1: So what's happening in the news? Well, Wall Street's latest worries, rising geopolitical tensions after President Trump warned of a US missile strike on Syria drag stock prices lower, the President's taunting added to the list of challenges for stocks this week, ranging from trade tensions with China to a user privacy crisis at Facebook that is lawmakers talking about more regulation of tech companies. But then earlier, stocks rallied globally from Wall Street to Sydney after Chinese President Xi Jinping alleviated trade war fears and reiterated pledges to open sectors from banking, to auto manufacturing, in a speech that also warned against returning to what he called a Cold War mentality amid trade disputes with US counterpart Donald Trump. His address gave the market certainty when US politics seemed mired in uncertainty, from the Mueller investigation through to Zuckerberg's congressional hearing and developments on Syria. Xi pledged a new phase of opening up in his keynote address on Tuesday to the Bao Forum for Asia. That's China's answer to Davos. While the speech offered little new policy, she affirmed or expanded on proposals to increase imports, lower foreign ownership limits on manufacturing, and expand protection to intellectual property, all central issues in Trump's trade gripes. The long-planned speech marking 40 years after the first economic reforms transformed China was being closely watched after Trump's plan to hit hundreds of Chinese products with duties. China faces a credibility cap after years of promises to free up the economy. These were followed by more centralised control, market access barriers and state support for local companies. Now, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg this week faced a two-day congressional inquisition with a public apology for a privacy scandal that has roiled the social media giant he founded more than a decade ago. Mr Zuckerberg opened his remarks before the US Senate Commerce and Judiciary Committees by taking responsibility for failing to prevent Cambridge Analytica, a data mining firm affiliated with Donald Trump's presidential campaign, from gathering personal information from 87 million users to try to influence the election. Mr Zuckerberg had apologised many times already to users and the public, but this was the first time in his career that he'd gone before Congress. Mr Zuckerberg said his company was attempting to change in light of recent criticism as he attempted to forestall a strict legislation aimed at the world's largest social network. The 33-year-old internet mogul was grilled on a range of issues, from Facebook's handling of alleged Russian attempts at election interference to consumer privacy and hate speech. Now Facebook faces a growing crisis of confidence among users, advertisers, employees and investors, after acknowledging that up to 87 million, mostly in the US, had personal information harvested from the site by Cambridge Analytica, the political consultancy that has countered US President President Donald Trump's election campaign among its clients. It's also struggling to deal with fake news and alleged foreign interference in elections disclosing in September that Russians under fake names had used the social network to try to influence US voters in the months before and after the 2016 election, writing about inflammatory subjects, setting up events and buying ads. And in February, US Special Counsel Robert Mueller charged 13 Russians and 3 Russian companies with interfering in the election by sowing discord on social media. Now to Australia, and business conditions here have pulled back from their record highs. The National Australia Bank Index of Business Conditions fell 6 points to 14 in March. Although that was still well above the long-run average of 5.5, it reversed gains in the previous two months. The Employment Index eased back to 9 points in March, down from an all-time high of 16 the month before. Still, that index is at an historical high. Profitability slipped 4 points to 14 in March, and the sales index eased 4 points to 20. Business confidence fell 2 points to 7. Now, significantly, the survey was conducted after US President Donald Trump announced tariffs on at least $50 billion worth of exports from China. That's Australia's largest single export market. And it also coincides with the extreme market volatility. Still, the survey results would be closely noted by the Reserve Bank of Australia, which keeps talking about its optimism about the business outlook. Now, Australia's ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index eased for the third consecutive week as the latest reading fell 0.3% to 115.1. The drag came from views towards current and future financial conditions, which continued to decline from last week, falling 1.5%, and 3.4 per cent respectively. On the upside, activity levels across Australia's construction sector continued to strengthen, underpinned by surge in growth in non-residential work. The Australian Industry Group's Performance of Construction Index rose 1.2 points to 57.2 in March in seasonally adjusted terms, leaving it well above the levels seen in previous years. The PCI measures can perceive changes in activity levels across Australia's construction sector from one month to the next. And anything above 50 signals that activity levels are improving. And the distance away from 50 indicates how quickly activity levels are expanding. So at 57.2, activity levels not only improved in March, they did so at a faster pace in February. And what the survey is telling us is that activity levels have now improved in each of the past 14 months. That's a prolonged period of growth never before seen in the 13-year history of the survey. Now, Financial Services Minister Kelly O'Dwyer has launched an urgent investigation into the Australian Tax Office following a joint Four Corners and Fairfax Media investigation. Two ATO whistleblowers have reported a toxic workplace culture where vulnerable small businesses and individuals are deliberately targeted to help meet revenue goals. And they described unethical tactics, including an hour of power, in which tax collectors were instructed to seize funds from bank accounts of taxpayers assessed to owe the tax office money, regardless of their personal circumstances. And in a statement... The ATO said the cases highlighted by Four Corners and Fairfax Media did not suggest, in their words, systemic issues within the organisation. Now, AMP Capital has warned that median Australian residential property prices are expected to drop sharply this year and in 2019. AMP Capital Chief Economist Dr Shane Oliver says house prices are set to drop by up to $1,000 a week in 2018, with further falls in 2019. However, he said a national property market crash, which would involve falls of about 20%, is unlikely given Australia's strong population growth, tightening lending standards and different economic conditions driving rises and falls in all the national capitals. Still, he pointed to Australian capital city home prices falling 0.2% in March. That's their fifth monthly fall in a row and he said this had brought annual growth down to 0.8%, that's down from 11.4% in May last year. Most of a recent weakness relates to Sydney, and to a lesser extent, Melbourne. According to HTW analysis, all mainland capitals, except for Melbourne, have passed their peak, and they're now starting to decline, or they're in a declining market, and approaching the bottom of the market. Now, new Commonwealth Bank of Australia Chief Executive Matt Coman has begun his stint leading the banking giant by apologising to staff for CBA's unacceptable failures in recent years, vowing that things will change under his watch. Mr Coman, who took over from Ian Narrow, said in an email to staff that a key priority would be to, in his words, put things right with customers who had been let down by the bank over recent years. Now, CBA has been the most scandal-prone of the country's major banks in recent years. Last year, it faced explosive allegations that it breached anti-money laundering and terrorism financing laws, and that followed previous revelations of misconduct in its financial advice business and problems in its life insurance arm. At the same time, however, four large US pension funds have joined a new class action against the Commonwealth Bank over alleged breaches of continuous disclosure obligations related to the lenders' money laundering scandal. Law firm Fee Finney McDonald said it was approached by sophisticated institutional investors to initiate an action after they learnt of an existing action filed in federal court in October. And the action would seek compensation for anyone who acquired CBA shares between June 16, 2014 and August 3, 2017. That's a longer period than that covered by Morris Blackburn's rival action. And the 99-year-old co-founder of vacuum cleaner business Godfrey's group has launched a bid to buy back the struggling business and take it private. John Johnson, who founded Godfrey's in the 1930s with Godfrey Cohen, has launched a 32 cents a share bid through his family business, Arcade Finance, and he plans to take the group off the ASX and build, rebuild its failing fortunes. Now, since listing in 2014 at $2.75, Godfrey's has suffered falling sales, multiple changes of senior management and a sustained slide in its share price to now 21 cents. That's an all-time low. Arcade Finance currently holds just over 28% of Godfrey's stock. Now, the Godfrey's board wants to get an independent valuation of the company and it's urged shareholders to take no action on the takeover bid. And finally... An alleged fraud involving a trusted NAB lieutenant and a key contractor worth millions of dollars has left executives at the highest level of the bank reeling after New South Wales police conducted raids on three Sydney premises this week. Warrants were served on the headquarters of events management company Human Group, an accountant, and the residence of Human Group founder and director Helen Rosamond to investigate an alleged scam involving overcharging and kickbacks investigated by Strike Force Naphtali, which was established by State Crime Command's Financial Crime Squad after it received intelligence of corrupt commissions paid to a bank employee who authorised inflated payments to contractors. The alleged fraud was discovered by the bank late last year. Now the news has arrived at an awkward time for the bank, coinciding with the Banking Royal Commission hearings revealing poor risk controls and a fraud ring operating out of its branches in Western Sydney. And that's it for this week. And next week, we have an interview with Johnny Wilkinson, the co-founder of Equitize, which is finalising Australia's first full retail equity crowdfunding offer. In the meantime, you can hear us on Twitter, at Talking Biz, B I or on Facebook, Take care, and we'll talk to you next week.
0: Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues